it's amazing how, uh, how loud it gets in here during that time, which is a really good thing, um, really encouraging thing, actually. Um, but yeah, but good morning, H2O. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, hope all of you are doing well this morning. Uh, it's great to see all of you here today. It's great to be here with all of you today. Um, honestly, like whether today is like your first time here with us uh, or you've been coming here for, for several years, well, we're so glad that every single one of you is here this morning. Uh, if you don't know already, uh, my name is Trevor, and I'm one of the staff members here with H2O Church Cincinnati, uh, and I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning as we continue to make our way through uh, the book of Genesis. Now, um, this morning we had um, some equipment malfunction, um, so that's why I'm using the, the handheld. I never, I've never preached with a handheld mic before. I've always had the earpiece. Um, so, uh, I give you permission that if I'm, like, talking in the sermon, and I'm doing you can uh, you can let me you can like kind of give me a give me a signal or something, um, and uh, I'll probably I'll probably see it. Okay, um, but uh, but should be a good time this morning. Um, as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 24 this morning. Um, but honestly, before we get into Genesis 24, I want to talk to you about something that is very important and very foundational in the Christian life, and it's something that will affect your ability to understand to receive and to apply all the things that I'm going to be talking to you about this morning. And this thing that I want to talk to you about to begin this morning is being humble before the Lord. Okay? Being humble before the Lord. As human beings, not even just as Christians, but just as human beings, it is massively important that we are humble before the Lord. If you aren't humble before the Lord, you will miss out on so many good and powerful and transformative and life-giving things that the Lord wants to do in and through your life. Without humility before the Lord, your pride, your arrogance, and your self-centeredness will blind you and deceive you and harden your heart so much. In the Old Testament, God spoke through his prophet Obadiah to the Edomite people, and he said, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So we see this truth that, uh, of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness deceiving the heart when, when humility is not there. And if you aren't humble before the Lord, but are instead prideful and arrogant and self-centered, you will actually find that God is opposing you. In James 4, 6, God's word tells us that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God hates pride, arrogance, and self-centeredness so much, and he actively opposes people who are prideful and arrogant, especially those who are prideful and arrogant before him. And let me tell you, it is a terrifying thing to have God himself opposing you and opposing your pride, right? And, and truth be told, like, God will not bend and, and God will not fold to cater to your pride. Because I think, I think sometimes, like, he, like, we really want him to do that, right? Like, like secretly, we have these things that are so prideful in our hearts. We're like, come on, God, come on. But, but God will never bend. He will never fold to our pride. And, and honestly, I would venture to say that being humble before the Lord is one of the most important character traits that a human can possibly have in this life. Like, like it, is, it is that important. Um, and so far, I've already shared a couple of scriptures with you about being humble before the Lord, but I'll just uh, give you a few more to show you or to remind you how much the Bible really talks about this. In, in chapter four of the book of James, God's word says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
In chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells us that for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Returning to the book of James, God's word says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And, and I've personally been meditating on this scripture here in, in James 1.21 uh, for about a year now, actually. Um, and, and with this verse, I believe that the, that the sin of pride and a lack of humility is one of the biggest reasons why many people go to hell every single day. And it's not because the sin of pride is an unforgivable sin. And it's not because that we can somehow outsin the powerful grace of God, but because pride and a lack of humility keeps so many people from looking to the Lord, keeps so many people from trusting in the Lord, relying on the Lord, <clears throat> or submitting to the Lord in their lives. And this further emphasizes just how important it is for us to be humble before the Lord. And in Psalm 147, God's word says, the Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. And honestly, this is just the beginning of how much God's word talks about this idea. So it's something so important. And again, the reason I bring this up this morning, the reason I'm talking to you about this before we even get into our main passage of scripture this morning is that without being humble before the Lord, you will not understand, you will not accept, or you will not apply any of the things that we're gonna be talking about this morning. Uh, so I challenge you and remind you uh, to be humble before the Lord. This means to humbly acknowledge and recognize that he is greater than us, that he is wiser than us, and that he is superior to us in every way. That, that, to, to humbly acknowledge and recognize that we don't know it all, and we don't always know best, even though in our pride we like to think that we know best a lot of the time, but that, that, but that God does know all things, and God does know best at all times and in all things. To humbly acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is the king and the controller of our lives, and we are not the kings and queens of our own lives. And to humbly acknowledge and recognize that we are created creatures, and that God is the creator. Um, and we don't get to play the part of God or fill the seat of God, because our God, Yahweh, is already in that seat, and he's doing a great job. Um, so that's how I wanted to start this morning, uh, to just challenge you and remind you to humble yourself before the Lord and to be humble before the Lord. Uh, but before we go any further, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer together, humbling ourselves before him, right? welcoming him here in this place with us and asking him to bless our time this morning. <clears throat> let's pray. Father God, we, just, we love you, God. God, we acknowledge your presence here with us. God, we welcome your presence here with us in this place. And God, we, we humble ourselves before you. God, we just ask that you would just pour out your spirit on this place. God, pour out your spirit into our hearts, into our minds. Holy Spirit, I, I just completely surrender this time to you. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of truth, the spirit of remembrance, the spirit uh, of revelation. So God, I just pray by your Holy Spirit, God, that you would just bless this time, enrich this time. Let it be all glorifying to you and grow us in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so as I said before, the main passage of Scripture we're going to be in this morning is Genesis chapter 24. Um, and, and to properly study this chapter and break this chapter down, we need to read through the entirety of, of the chapter all together in one push. 
And I'll tell you, this is a pretty long chapter, uh, longer than most of the chapters that we go through here on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's 67 verses in length, uh, so, so it's a big one. Um, but honestly, like, we need to read the whole chapter to get the full picture of what's going on um, in this chapter. Uh, and even though this chapter is long, I want you to think of it as a story that we're being told, because actually what it is, this, this is a historical story-like account of something that happened a long time ago. Um, as we go through this, you can just listen, or you can follow along in, uh, in your Bibles, or follow along on the screens behind me. Um, I was going to read out of my, my own Bible, but since I only have one hand now, I'm actually going to read from my phone, because um, that'll make it easier. And it's Genesis 24. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. God's Word says, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that, he, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. And then the servant left, taking, the, uh, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of Master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my Master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it, may it be that when I say to a young woman, please let, your, let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No woman had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, uh, the son that Bilcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. 
As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebecca tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, You must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in, who, in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, What if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, The Lord, before whom I have walked faithfully, will send his angel with you and make your journey a success, so you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. You will be released from my, from my oath if, when you go to my clan, they refu- refuse to give her to you. Then you will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar, and she says to me, drink, and I'll water, uh, draw water for your camels too. Let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshiped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get to the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so that I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord, and we can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they had said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and mother replied, Let the young woman remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. But he said to them, Do not detain me, now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way, so I may go to my master. Then they said, Let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the, men, with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. 
Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The end. Okay. Um, that's a long one. Uh, I was just looking at my phone for like, for like 10 minutes there. Um, but... Um, but yeah, that's the main passage of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning. And hopefully you can see, um, I honestly tried. I was like, how do I, how do I cut this down? Uh, and I couldn't do it. Um, so we just went through the whole, the whole chapter. Um, but hopefully you can see why we needed to kind of read the whole chapter to get the full context. Uh, and contextually in this chapter, it's about Abraham's, Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, getting a wife. Um, and this is important because in order for the line of the Messiah to continue through Isaac, Isaac needed a wife. Right? And here in this chapter, we see how God provided that. Um, but diving right into what we can learn from this chapter now, we see that Abraham refused to compromise on the Lord and the Lord's command to him and the Lord's promise. Okay? Abraham refused to compromise on the Lord, on the Lord's command to him and the Lord's promise. To ensure that all of you understand what I mean when I say this, to compromise means to find, accept, and operate by a standard that is lower than desirable whether that standard is lower than desirable by you, by you or by someone else. So in other, in other words, uh, to compromise just means to, to find middle ground in some way. And there are times and instances in life where it is actually good and right and healthy and wise to be able to find a compromise. Because being able to find a good compromise can help to resolve relational conflict. It can be a tool to make others feel respected and heard and valued. And it can be a way to care for others well. For example, in the context of marriage, being flexible and being able to find a compromise together with your spouse are very important and very valuable skills to have. In a marriage relationship, it wouldn't be right or healthy if just one person in the relationship got their way all the time. Um, rather, it's important to work together as a couple to find a mutually beneficial decision when it comes to things like what to do for a date night, where to go, uh, what restaurant to go to for dinner, expressing love languages to each other, dividing and assigning, uh, assigning household chores, uh, splitting up the holidays and, and other things as well. And there are, of course, times when it's good and right and loving to just go with whatever your spouse wants in a particular thing, to humbly serve them, to love them, and to sacrifice for them in that way but it's not healthy if just one person gets their way 100% of the time. We'll take financial buz uh, budgeting as an example of an area where, where it will be good to find a good compromise. When you create, set, and maintain a financial budget plan, whether it's for yourself or a team or, or again, for a marriage, uh, you may need to compromise a little bit in some areas to accommodate or make room for other things to make it all fit together. So there's like this delicate and, and thoughtful dynamic of give, of give and take in these scenarios. Now, with that said, and make sure you hear me on this. If you hear nothing else, make sure you hear what I'm about to say right now. When it comes to the Lord and the things of the Lord and the commands of the Lord and the directives of the Lord and the desires of the Lord, all the things of the Lord, we should never compromise. You never ever compromise on the Lord. And this is where humility on our part comes into play and where humility on our part is very, very important. We have to humbly acknowledge and recognize that guess what? God does not need our help or our insight or our advice or our assistance or our wise counsel or our reworking to make decisions or to determine what is right and wrong, good and bad. God doesn't need our help, he's God. 
He is totally self-sufficient. He is taking care of all of that perfectly already for us. And we are to reverently submit to the Lord in everything. And we should never compromise on the Lord because the Lord and all of his ways and all of his commands and all of his standards and all of his directives and all of his word are already good, are already right and life-giving and perfect, just the way they are. God always knows best. God always knows best. And God is worthy of our wholehearted and our uncompromising obedience. And honestly, there's some people who would push back on this. They would challenge this. They would say that the word of God and the standards of God need to evolve and adapt and change with the times to stay relevant and useful and accurate and legitimate. And maybe you're here today and that's something that you personally believe. But here's the thing. The word of God is timeless and eternal. The word of God is not confined to any certain time period, past, present, or future. It is fully true and accurate and relevant and useful for every time period, including ours today. And even though things like fashion and food and art and architecture and athletics and music and entertainment and technology change and adapt and evolve over time, the word of God always and forever stays constant and firm and true and reliable and unchanging. And the word of God is timeless and eternal because God himself is timeless and eternal. In the book of 1 Peter, God's word says, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So we never compromise on the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham refused to compromise on the Lord. Uh, And we see this in in the interaction that Abraham has with his senior servant at the beginning of the chapter. The Bible says, Abraham said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but you will go to to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman's unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So there's multiple ways here that we see Abraham is refusing to compromise on the Lord. And the first way is the fact that Abraham makes it clear that he will not allow Isaac's wife to be from the Canaanite people, which was the people group they were geographically living around at the time. In these verses, Abraham makes the servant swear a solemn oath to him about this. Um, And the fact that that he made the servant swear an oath to him means this is super serious and super important. You know, like like today, someone might be like, I swear, dude, I swear, right? That totally, totally different here. Like this is like, this is, this is, Big time, right here. The fact that Abraham is making, making his, uh, uh, his servant swear here. And there was a very good reason why Abraham did not want Isaac's wife to be a Canaanite woman. 
And it wasn't just a preference thing for Abraham. And it wasn't like a hometown pride for, thing for Abraham, right? This is actually a very spiritual matter here. And we aren't given much detail about the Canaanite people here in Genesis 24. But if we look further into the Bible, we find more information about the Canaanite people and why it was that Abraham did not want Isaac's wife to be a Canaanite. Um, just listen to what God says about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God's speaking to Moses and he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what, <clears throat> this is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession. So in light of the scripture, it's clear that the Canaanites were not people of God, right? It's clear that they were actually enemies of God, and God eventually did away with them. Um, and, and these people were enemies of God, like not just because, you know, the wrong place at the wrong time, but because they, they were just so evil. They were so wicked, they were so corrupt, so depraved, so proud, and so idolatrous, as God even mentions here in Deuteronomy 7. And Abraham knew that the Canaanites were not people of God, and he knew they were actually enemies of God. So he wisely refused to allow the senior servant to get a wife for his son from the Canaanite people. And here's something important about this that you need to know. The task that Abraham gave to the senior servant to go get a wife from his homeland Instead, instead of from among the Canaanite people, was not a small, easy, or simple task, okay? The reason being is that Abraham's homeland was not across the street, right? And it wasn't even around the bend. Historians tell us that the most common route to get from where Abraham, Isaac, and the, and the senior servant were to Abraham's homeland was 900 miles. That's a lot of miles, 900 of them, right? And to put that into perspective for you, like here's some travel distances from Cincinnati, okay? Orlando, Florida is 903 miles away from here. Okay, so that's about the journey that he would take, right? Dallas, Texas, you wanna go see the Dallas Cowboys? Like, it's about that distance, okay? Boston, Massachusetts, 861. You have to go further than Boston, all right? Fargo, North Dakota, North Dakota. It's like 936 miles. Like, holy cow. Uh, New Orleans, 803 miles. You'll have to go 100 miles into the Gulf of Mexico uh, to get to that distance, right? Like 900 miles. So this was a long journey and a big task for the senior servant. And keep in mind that the senior servant was either walking or riding a camel the entire time. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a camel going 70 miles an hour, <laughs> right? Like, this is a long journey, okay? Um, this is not an easy task. It would have been much easier, much faster, way more simple. Just be like, hey, Canaanites, give me a good one, right? Like, come on, 
Right? Um, but Abraham refused to compromise on the Lord. And this should actually teach us a powerful lesson today when it comes to compromising on the Lord. Sometimes you may have to put in extra work. You may have to put in extra effort, extra time, extra sweat to not compromise on the Lord. And it may be difficult. It may be taxing. It may be challenging to not compromise on the Lord, especially when the opportunity to compromise is right in front of you. But, as we'll, but right as we see here, it is never worth it to compromise on the Lord. So do whatever you need to do and go any distance to not compromise on the Lord because God is worthy of our wholehearted and uncompromising obedience. And honestly, any time that you choose to compromise, you are always settling for less, much less than what the Lord has for you. There's a very good reason why Abraham did not compromise and there are very good reasons why we shouldn't compromise either. Another way that we see that Abraham was not compromising here in Genesis 24 um, is the fact that he says under no circumstances was Isaac to go back, okay? Under no circumstances was Isaac to go back to Abraham's homeland. Um, The senior servant asked Abraham, what if the the woman's unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? In response, Abraham says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. And And Abraham tells us why. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. And here, Abraham is actually referencing the original command and the original promise from Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth, on earth will be blessed through you. And when, when God came to Abraham and said this, Abraham obeyed and went. Um, and, and the Lord led him to the land that they're currently in here in Genesis 24. Um, so Abraham, when he says to not take Isaac back, he is choosing to, re- to remain faithful to the Lord and the Lord's command and the Lord's promise from Genesis 12. Abraham is ensuring that Isaac will not erase or go back on the obedience and trust and faithfulness that Abraham showed to the Lord. And Abraham was ensuring this because he knew that partial obedience to the Lord or short-term obedience to the Lord was not the kind of obedience that God was looking for or worthy of. God was and still is looking for full obedience to him and obedience to him for the long haul. <clears throat> so here in Genesis 24, Abraham refused to compromise, even if that meant extra work, extra time, and challenge. And unlike Abraham's example here in Genesis 24, many Christians in the modern day compromise on the Lord in so many ways. God's word tells us in Ephesians 5.3 that there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality in our lives. Yet so many Christians in the modern day will harbor sexual immorality in their lives, even if it's just a little bit. And they'll try to figure out how much sexual deviation that they can walk in without feeling too much conviction or shame or consequence, whether it's in their actions or their boundaries in a romantic relationship or their wandering eyes or in their minds. God's word tells us in multiple places that we need to actively and intentionally and diligently flee from sin in our lives. Yet so many Christians in the modern day will choose to flirt with sin sin instead. 
God's word warns us that we need to be careful and watchful and sober-minded about what we are allowing to influence us and what kind of content that we're taking in through avenues like music, movies, TV, books, social media, and podcasts. Yet so many Christians in the modern day have no filter when it comes to what they consume and what they take in from the world around them. And God's word speaks so much about the importance and the power of the words that we speak. And God's word tells us that all of the words that we speak are to be good and righteous and godly and holy and pure and upright and encouraging. Yet so many Christians in the modern day tend to be very careless about the words that they speak. Many, many Christians in the modern day will still take the Lord's name in vain. will use profanities in their everyday talk, especially when around friends or classmates or peers who are not yet Christians. We'll, to, we'll participate in coarse joking with their friends, judgmental talk, or gossip, all of which are called out and prohibited in the scriptures. We'll tear each other down or we'll hurt each other with their words, whether it's in the midst of a conflict, a conflict or in a quote-unquote playful or just joking manner. But all of this is compromising on the standard that God's word sets for us when it comes to the words that we speak. God's word very clearly and directly tells Christians to not marry someone who is a not yet Christian, but some Christians pursue, date, and marry not yet Christians anyway and, comp and compromise on the Lord in that way. And in addition to that, many college-age Christians in the modern day will participate in acts of academic dishonesty and in this way compromise on the standard of honesty, integrity, truth, and authenticity that we are called to in God's word. And I could easily keep going with other examples uh, of these things, uh, but I'll just leave it at that for now. So compromising on the Lord is something that we really need to be sober-minded about, watchful with, and repentant of in our lives. Um, and even though Abraham did not compromise on the Lord um, here in Genesis 24, uh, I do want to share some truths with you uh, real quick about compromising, uh, just because of how important it is. Um, so I'm going to step away from Genesis 24 for just a little bit, and then we're going to return to it. All right. The first of these things I want to share with you is something I've already implied, but I'll, I'll say directly now. Compromising on the Lord is sinful. All right. it's, not it's not just that it's an unwise or unhealthy thing to compromise on the Lord. Compromising on the Lord is sinful. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 32 and 33, God's word says, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may li live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. When we, look at, when we look at compromising on the Lord through the lens of this scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 5, we can clearly see that compromise is sinful. Turning to the right and to the left is exactly what compromise is. So God expects us to be faithful and obedient and uncompromising in everything when it comes to him. Okay, <clears throat> next. Just as all other sins come with negative consequences, compromising on the Lord always has negative consequences, even if those consequences aren't immediately seen. All right. Compromising on the Lord in some way might not seem like a big deal or a significant danger or a pitfall in the moment of the compromise. But the Bible teaches us and shows us that the implications or the consequences of compromising on the Lord are significant, far-reaching, and disastrous. And the negative consequences of compromising on the Lord don't just affect, don't just affect us, and that's it. The, consequ the consequences of compromising on the Lord are felt by God himself as his heart is grieved and displeased felt by fellow Christians in your life, in the body of Christ. God's word tells us that when, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, every part suffers with it. 
They're felt by the lost and especially felt by those who are close to you. Even though Abraham didn't compromise on the Lord in Genesis 24, there are several examples in the Bible of people who did compromise on the Lord. And in literally all of those biblical examples, significant negative consequences were felt as a result of their decision to compromise. Because of compromises on the Lord that are recorded in the Bible, innocent people died. Some compromisers themselves were killed. Souls drifted away from the Lord. Hearts were corrupted. Integrity and faithfulness was lost. God's heart was grieved. Kings were dethroned. Kingdoms were fractured and divided. Nations were conquered. Legacies crumbled. People groups were oppressed. Families suffered loss. Communities were scattered. Heavy guilt and sorrow and pain was experienced. Fear and stress ran rampant. Hostility was created. Panic and chaos ensued. And so much more. All as a result of people compromising on the Lord. Specific examples. And again, it wasn't just the compromisers who experienced these negative consequences. These these consequences were felt far and wide. And remember that I said that they're not always immediately seen either. And sometimes the consequences of your compromise might not be seen by you at all, but someone else is still experiencing the negative consequences of your compromise in private or internally in their own heart or their mind. I take the compromising example of using our words to participate in coarse joking or to make fun of someone or to tear another person down um, as an example. If someone had a hard day or if someone is in a season where they're really struggling with insecurity or if someone is experiencing attacks on their self-worth from the spiritual enemy and then you come along and make fun of them for something or or criticize them in some way or tear them down in some way, you might not see how much your negative words actually crush them on the inside. You might not see how your negative words led them to hate themselves and to get super down on themselves and to spiral in despair because of your words. You might not see how your negative words really affected them in some other way behind closed doors or behind a face that they are putting on when they are around people. But your choice to compromise with your words still led to negative and painful and difficult, difficult consequences for them. So this is something that we need to be very humble and very sober-minded about the consequences of compromise. Um, And and honestly, you might not see how your compromise in the Lord in some way leads someone else to compromise because they're following your example. Before I move on from this, one one last thing on on this idea of consequences of compromise. Um, Compromising on the Lord can ruin your witness for Christ. I was just getting dinner, uh, getting dinner with someone last week, and they were telling me about a coworker of theirs who claims to be a Christian, but is compromising on the Lord so much that that coworker's witness for Christ is basically obsolete. If you are a compromising Christian, your personal witness for Christ is very negatively affected. And if you're compromising on the Lord, people will see that you aren't actually that devoted or committed to Jesus or to what you believe, and that will severely damage your personal witness to others for Christ. And here's something I've noticed about the culture that we live in today. People in our culture today want something real. They want something that is worth pursuing, that is worth fighting for, that is worth standing up for, that is worth living their lives for. And Jesus absolutely is the thing that is real and that is worth pursuing and that is worth fighting for and that is worth standing up for and that is worth living your life for and that people were created for. But if you are compromising on the Lord, your life will tell people, the lost around you, that he isn't that he isn't worth fighting for, that he isn't worth standing up for. 
And in this, your witness for Christ is absolutely ruined. And that sounds harsh and that's heavy, but it's true. And one of the things that makes compromising on the Lord so dangerous is its subtlety. Compromise is a very quiet, sneaky, patient, and subtle monster. And it's a very slippery slope. Compromising on the Lord in a certain area or in a certain way typically begins with a seemingly small or seemingly insignificant compromise in some way. You think to yourself, yeah, it's a compromise, but it's not really that big of a deal. But friends, that is where it always starts. That is where we give the devil a foothold in our lives. That is where you give the devil a foothold in your heart, in your soul, and in this community. What happens next is that we're tempted to compromise a little bit more, and then just a little bit more, and then just a little bit more, and then just a little bit more, justifying ourselves, justifying our actions, justifying our compromises each step along the way. And before we know it, we are in the turbulent and forceful waters of a vicious sin cycle or a major sin blowout or a major character weakness and our relationship with God is on the rocks. And when we get to that point, we don't even know how we got there. But I'm telling you right now this morning how people get there. It's compromise. And it's compromise that started small. And and you think about some of those consequences I read earlier, like even people dying, nations splitting, kingdoms getting fractured, those kinds of things. I bet the people who like, like committed the compromises that led to that probably had that same thought one day. Oh, so it's just small. It won't amount to anything. Right? So we have to be humble and sober-minded about this. Abraham didn't compromise on the Lord, and we shouldn't either. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this, I just, man, I just encourage you just to re- repent today and to, t- to turn to the Lord in that. <clears throat> um. Another major theme that we see here in Genesis chapter four is people relying on the Lord and trusting the Lord and God providing for the people who relied on him and trusted him. God loves it when we look to him and rely on him and trust him. Like he, he really loves it so much. God is a good father to us and he is near to us and he is actively involved in his creation. And he wants to help us and support us and provide for us and strengthen us and protect us and empower us and come alongside us and whatever else. And God actually wants you to rely on him in everything. It's your ministry efforts, your own personal relationship with him, your schoolwork, your job, your friendships, your family, your peace, your strength, your endurance, your comfort, your rest, your wisdom, your guidance, your joy, your everything. That God wants you to rely on him in everything and not even just your spiritual life. Uh, as I kind of indirectly mentioned at the beginning of my sermon this morning, it requires humility to rely on the Lord and to trust the Lord and not just to rely on yourself. And not only does looking to the Lord and relying on the Lord and trusting the Lord benefit us, it also gives God such a great opportunity to display his glory, his goodness, his kindness, his power, his love, his mercy, and his grace, which is amazing. And in Genesis 24, we see that Abraham, the senior servant, Bethuel, Laban, and Rebekah were all looking to the Lord, all relying on the Lord and trusting the Lord. Now I'll show this to you. In verse 7 of Genesis 24, Abraham says to the senior servant, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. So in this, we see Abraham, again, looking to the Lord, relying on the Lord and trusting in him. 
And we specifically see expectant faith displayed here by Abraham, right? God was not leading the servant yet, but God said he will. Even if I don't see it, he will. That is so powerful. And honestly too, thinking about and remembering and reflecting on how the Lord has been good to you and faithful to you in the past will compel you, what will lead you to trust him and to rely on him now and in the present as well. The very first verse of the, the scripture says that the Lord blessed Abraham in every way. And I can only imagine that like, even because of that, Abraham knew that like, God would just always take care of him. Right? So remember how the Lord has taken care of you. Remember how he's been good to you. And that will compel you for the present and the future. In verses nine and 10 of Genesis 24, the Bible says, uh, um, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him 10 of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, the Haram, and made his way to the town of Nahor. Uh, in this, we see the, ser- the senior servant trusting the Lord, trusting that the Lord would do what Abraham said he would do. And in verse 12 of Genesis 24, we're told that, uh, that once the senior servant reached Abraham's homeland, that the senior servant prayed to the Lord and asked the Lord to provide, which again is the, is the servant relying on the Lord and trusting the Lord. Fast forwarding a little bit now, in verses 50 and 51 of Genesis 24, Bethuel, who's Rebekah's father, and Laban, who's Rebekah's brother, say to the senior servant, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here's Rebekah, take her and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. And again, very clearly, we see them relying on the Lord and trusting the Lord with their dear Rebecca. And in verse 58, when, when, when Rebecca is asked whether she will go with the servant, she says, I will go. And in this, Rebecca herself is displaying faith. And both the senior servant and Rebecca looked to the Lord and relied on the Lord and trusted the Lord, even though they didn't exactly know where they were going. And even though they didn't exactly know how the Lord was going to provide for them. And this is the same kind of faith and trust that Abraham displayed in Genesis 12 when God told him to leave his country. Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he knew who was leading him. And that was enough for him, right? So, so even let their example encourage you today. You may not know, you may be faced with unknowns. You may not know what is ahead, but if you know who is leading you, that is enough. And you can be so secure and at peace in that, right? <clears throat> Um, so we see how uh, these people put their faith and their trust and their reliance in the Lord and how the Lord provided for them. And, and I want to even highlight here, like it's almost even something, something comical here. Like in, in verse 15, it says that even like before the senior servant had finished his prayer, Rebecca came, right? It says, while he was still praying, Rebecca came out with her jar, right? And just imagine like seeing this, right? He's there and he's actively praying to the Lord and Rebecca comes, he's like, uh, okay, thanks, thanks God. And he just goes and he's just like there, even, like even before his prayer is over. Um, and, and long story short, the, the Lord provides for the senior servant, provides for Abraham, provides for Isaac, even before the senior servant is finished with his prayer. Um, later in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, God is talking about his people praying to him. And he says, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. And this is right in line with what we're seeing in Genesis 24. So God always hears and receives our prayers instantly as soon as we pray them. And he is able to answer them immediately in real time. 
There's no transactional or business-like processing time when it comes to God and our prayers. God, like once God answers or fulfills a prayer, it doesn't take three to five business days for it to get to you, right? It can be immediate in God's sovereignty. So when you're doing evangelism or, or when you're leading worship or when you're in a difficult situation or a, school, or a scary place or under pressure in a time crunch in some way, be encouraged by the truth that our God is able uh, to hear our prayers and answer our prayers immediately in real time. And now with that said, as I talked about in my sermon on Genesis 21 two Sundays ago, we shouldn't allow the prevalent culture of instant gratification to sneak into our spiritual lives because those tendencies of instant gratification will spoil and corrupt and skew our spiritual lives and our spiritual health. So I don't want you to see how God immediately answers the senior servant's prayer here in Genesis 24 and that create this idea in your mind that God will always answer your prayers immediately in real time. And that if he doesn't answer your prayer right away, that you should just give up praying on whatever it is that you're praying about. If you're praying about a certain thing and that you believe, and that you believe it's in line with God's word and God's will and God's kingdom, but you don't get an answer or provision from the Lord right away, keep pressing into the Lord in prayer. Keep discerning how the Holy Spirit is leading you in prayer and keep discerning whether or not the thing you're praying about is in line with God's word, God's will, and God's kingdom. Because remember, as I said two Sundays ago, um, the Lord always has perfect and intentional timing with everything he does and everything he says. Okay. <clears throat> and the last couple of things here before we, before we wrap up. This is a long sermon just because the, you know, it's a massive chapter to read. Um, I want you to notice that God, provide, God provides truly great things for his people. And this isn't me preaching to you the prosperity gospel. It says that God will richly lavish you with abundant health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. I'm not preaching that or endorsing that at all. But it wouldn't be right to ignore or be silent on the truth that our God provides truly great things for his people. And what leads me to bring this up is what we read about Rebecca in our Genesis 24 passage. Uh, I want you to notice what the focus is and what the focus is not in what we read about Rebecca. The text does briefly mention in verse 16 that Rebecca was very beautiful, but the primary focus was on Rebecca's heart and Rebecca's character. And this is why the senior servant specifically prays what he does when he prays and asks the Lord for help and provision. What the senior servant prays, prays for is not just some random sign that the Lord would give him. Rather, the senior servant was seeking out a woman of high character and heart and servanthood for Isaac. <clears throat> so he prays, may it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. He doesn't pray that she would be a certain height or that she would have a certain hair color or that she would be a certain size. Instead, he prays that she would have heart, that she would have character, and that she would have a spirit of humble servanthood. And the Lord was pleased to answer this prayer from the senior servant. So when I say that our God provides truly great things for his people, that is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. And there is no limit to how much you can rely on God today. If you are a Christian, you have access to as much of God himself and as much of God's help, support, power, strength, wisdom, and storehouses as you want or need. As finite human beings, we have limits. We have capacities. We run out of steam. We run out of energy. We run out of strength. We run out of resources. 
In this life, we're engulfed by these experiences of limitations and resources running out and people getting weary, tired, and overburdened, whether those experiences are with ourselves or from other people. But we have to understand that God is not like us in this way. God has no limitations. God never grows weary or tired. God is never overburdened. And God's storehouses and resources never run out. And you don't have a personal quota of how much you're allowed to rely on the Lord. And you are never a burden to the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 40, God's word says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths will grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So what is it that you need to rely on the Lord for instead of relying on yourself for? See, your own personal salvation, your own personal eternal life. Because friends, if you don't know already, it is impossible for us to save our own souls. Entrance into heaven in a personal relationship with God requires total sinless perfection, complete righteousness. And every single one of us here today have already ruined our shot to save our own souls because every single one of us is guilty of sinning against the Lord at least once. And therefore, none of us are sinlessly perfect or totally righteous in and of ourselves. James 2.10 in the Bible says, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So sinning just one time in your life, whether it was in the past, present, or future, makes you a sinner. It means that you are in need of a Savior. But thankfully, Jesus came, and he lived a sinless life. Yet he went to the cross for you and for me to make us sinless and righteous in the eyes of God the Father if we rely on him and trust in him as our Savior and our King. So today, do you need to rely on Jesus to save you and not rely on yourself? Or if you're already here today and you're a born-again Christian, what is it that you need to rely on for the Lord and not yourself? Is it strength, your identity, your worth, your courage, endurance, patience, peace, more faith, provision in some way, breakthrough in some way, the salvation of a loved one, or something else? Whatever it is, God wants you to look to him and rely on him and trust him. To close this morning, uh, worship team, you can, you can come back up. Genesis 24 teaches us and reminds us that we are to stay fully and wholeheartedly faithful and obedient to the Lord. And we are not to compromise on the Lord at all or in any way, not even, not even in seemingly small or insignificant compromises, because every compromise is a big deal to God. And even the seemingly small compromise can lead to huge pitfalls down the road. We all have things in our lives that we're unwilling to budge on, right? That's true. I know that's true. Every single one of us in this room has things that we're unwilling to budge on. Every single one of us in this room has things we're unwilling to compromise on that are non-negotiable standards for us. My question for you, is the Lord that for you? Are the commands of the Lord that for you? Things that you are unwilling to budge on. Things that you are totally unwilling to compromise on things that are non-negotiable standards for you. Again, as I've said multiple times before, God is worthy of our wholehearted and uncompromised obedience. As I was driving here just from my house this morning, 
I thought of something from, from Revelation 12. It talks about the, the, these people in heaven. And it says that, that, they, that they did not love their lives unto death. And it's talking about these people who died rather than compromised on the word of God. Right? They, they were faced with, with, this, with this moment. Either die, either, either compromise the Lord and live or die. And they chose death because they would never compromise on the Lord. And let that sit with you today. Right? Let us be a people who does not compromise on the Lord and be a people who, who, who do rely on the Lord, obey the Lord and trust the Lord in everything. Let's pray. Father, God, you are such a good God to us, such a good King. God, we thank you, God, that you have come and God, you have, you have shown us, God, you have given us your ways, God. God, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, come, seek us, search us, know us, reveal to us if there's any compromise in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Even those compromises that we may think are, are seemingly small or seemingly insignificant. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would come and you would refine us, you would sanctify us, you would convict us. And today would be a day of repentance, a day of purification, a day of newness, a day of fresh devotion and fresh commitment to you, Jesus. And Father God, we pray that you would even just continue to lead us to, to rely on you and not, our, not on ourselves and everything in life. God, we love you. We pray this in your precious name.